Thank you, Dal. And thanks to the committee. All, everyone on the committee has been terribly good to me, including Dal. And I, I'm always so amazed and so surprised that I should get any attention at all because uh, I'm just like you. I mean, I, I drank in very poor bars and, and rotten bootlegging stuff and got drunk and had to be hauled home. And now I get called the oldest woman west of the Rockies or something like that. <laughs> and, and you know, and I know that at my age and after my experience in AA and having been sober and hugged and kissed and loved as much as this, so that if I got drunk now, it would kill me. Kill me right away. I wouldn't even linger around very long. Because next month, next month I'll be 79 years old. <laughs> Last month, I celebrated my 46th sober birthday at a heartbeat at a time. <laughs> I wonder how that might must sound for the young members. I'm talking about age, the, the 15, 16, 18, 20, 25-year-old uh, kids, young people who come in now, and they see Grandma Moses up here, you know. <laughs> And they'll think, well, oh my gosh, you know, it, it, it's just not possible to ever, uh, you know, live to be that old and not have a drink in 46 years. Yeah, it's possible, but it doesn't mean that it's always just moonlight and roses and uh, untold wealth and uh, good health and uh, make a lot of money and always look good to the people and say the right things, and, and nothing bad can ever happen to you because you don't drink now. And then I look around uh, and think about my mother and my father, they never did drink, and <laughs> they never had any good times particularly, uh, you know? <laughs> so here I am, uh, supposed to be a little unique, I suppose, because I've hung around so long, but I intend to be here for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that must be the Oxnard table there. I think I see the Garcias. And I'll tell you uh, about the Garcias. I was married to a compulsive gambler, and uh, that's part of my long name of Sybil Doris, Adam Stratton, Hart, Maxwell, Willis, Corwin. <laughs> and when it got to the Willis part, my daughter, Addie, who came down especially to be here from Northern California, is laughing. She's been sober five years, five miraculous years, Addie Williams. And she was laughing about uh, Jim, Jim Willis, uh, who started uh, the gambling, non-gambling program, Gamblers Anonymous, so successfully, as her step-step-stepfather, or the two steps. Uh, I've kind of forgotten how many steps were packed on that. <laughs> they were terribly fond of each other, and he was a great man. And these people from Oxnard, in his last year, he spent in a rest home a block from their home, the Garcias. And do you know that Tony and Tony trudged over there every day of Jim's life, and I don't think you knew these people before today, Addie, uh, that they, they, they lived there in Oxnard. They knew what a wonderful thing that he had done for so many gamblers that killed themselves and literally cut their throats because there was no way out. 
and he wrote the book, and he did the meeting directory, and he traveled around the country and got GA started all over the country and did a great job. And the Garcia's sitting right here. I had no idea. I thought they'd be invisible out there someplace. So thank you again for meaning, meaning so much in our lives. It is so helpful to have people who stick by you when the going is rough. Because as human beings, you know, uh, the human beings all over the world have rough times and they don't have to get drunk at it or take dope for it and all of that kind of thing. But we've had people stand by us and looking back over your lives regardless of your sobriety date, uh, it's a great thing to know that actually that most of us are closer to each other than we are our first cousins, perhaps. Some of us would say mother-in-laws. Others would name distant relatives or the neighbors next door. And yet you know what makes me tick, and I know something about what makes you tick. And I found out early on that if Alcoholics Anonymous didn't work when things got tough, that it wasn't worth a plugged nickel when the sun was shining. It had to work through everything, no matter what. And it does. I hope there's, I don't know where that guy is sitting, that I gave a hug to 25 days sober because of the lights, where I could identify you. And I talked to him and, and hugged him uh, 10 minutes before the meeting started. And 25 days sober, can you imagine that? What must he think of us when we shout and scream and hoop and holler with laughter one moment? And then we get deadly serious when we talk about this alcoholism thing and what it did to our lives. Because it is a serious thing, and most of us who come to AA know that there's no, absolutely no other way out but this, permanently, except in a few cases uh, of religion, but not in the majority of cases. Because a lot of us tried religion first. We tried drying out places. We tried uh, lots of things. Tried willpower, that dirty word. Willpower. I, that's all I ever tried was, was promises, promises, I won't do it again. I won't be missing for three days. Uh, I, I really won't ever drink again. I swear I won't. I, I, I promise you I won't. I really mean it. I mean it. I mean it. I, I'd rather die than drink again. Well, I meant that. But there I was. The longest time I ever stayed sober was nine days when I hitchhiked out of town with uh, Addie's father. Bill Hart. He was a sailor boy, paid off out of the Navy, didn't have a nickel. And we got married, and Addie was born, and my mother took care of the baby. And when she was six months old, we were dead broke, and we hitchhiked out of town and left Addie there with my mother, who was very ill with a heart problem, heart trouble, and died early on. And we, we hitchhiked, hungover and depressed and poor, and didn't want to behave the way we were doing, and we got out as far as uh, Arvin, which is 18 miles this side of Bakersfield in California. Got over the ridge route all right, which was just a muddy trail then. It wasn't a big thoroughfare. And it took us a long time hitching rides on trucks and things to get there. But when we got to where it said Bakersfield, 18 miles or 25 miles, whichever it was, there was a little sign pointed to the right that said Arvin. And we got a cold drink or something there. We slept in a haystack that night. I'd forgotten about that. And the next morning, the man at the little grocery store there where we got some crackers or something to eat, 
she said, if you want to hitchhike into Arvin, they're picking grapes there, and I think they, they can use you. So we walked and hitched rides on a little truck full of grapes and one thing or another until we got to Arvin and got a job picking grapes. And the sun was hot, 120 or something like that, and I was sweating. I was very young, and I thought, this is the life. Now I'm away from those drunks and those places and those saloons, and, and now then I won't have to drink anymore, and Mama will take good care of the baby, and we'll make a little bundle of money here picking these grapes, and when we go back, well, we'll take the baby, and we'll rent the apartment, and I'll have my little girl, and she'll never see her mother drunk. And I worked hard, and I was dirty and sweaty, but happy. And then along about sundown, all of those great pickers from many, had come from many directions. And they were college kids, mostly, that were there for, to earn tuition for the fall. A nice, clean-cut little crowd. And they gathered around and built a bonfire, uh, because there wasn't anything else to do except getting their sleeping bag or whatever. And so they built this bonfire, and they started harmonizing. And Bill and I joined the little crowd there, and I thought, now this is the life. Oh, boy, will I be healthy and tan, and I'll be such a good wife and mother when we get back to Los Angeles. And we started harmonizing with them. And then I saw around this, this big circle of young people, and Bill here and I'm here, I, I saw a bottle start being passed around the circle a bottle being passed, and, and I knew what it was. It was a big, big quart of whiskey. And I knew, and my mouth began to water. I was salivated, and I knew that when that bottle reached me, I watched for the next to the next. I thought, God, I hope there's enough for me. And it finally reached me, and I turned up the bottle and drank the rest of it, the whole thing. And realizing that I had failed once again, I couldn't bear it. I got up from the campfire and I wandered down the row of grapes, stumbling from one row to the next, just stumbling along with my head down and sobbing and crying. I remember looking up at the moon and praying, Oh God, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And I never felt such sorrow. My throat just ached from pain. And I finally began to worry and got terribly frightened because I heard this heavenly music in the answer to my prayer. And it was heavenly. It was eerie. And I thought, all right, I've overdone it this time. Now I've got DTs. I've got DTs on top of everything else. Listen to that music. It's so beautiful. And I began to stumble and run to get away from the music, and I couldn't get away from it. It got louder and louder and louder. And so pretty soon I stumbled upon this big khaki tent out there in an acre that was free of grapevines, and it was the local uh, revival meeting, a church meeting. And all of the townspeople were in there singing hymns, but I didn't know that. And when I reached there, it was like those double doors there, I parted the flap of the tent, and the music stopped, and the preacher he was disconcerted, and he looked back in the back to where the exit was at this dirty face, tears running down my cheeks, this, this woman standing back there swaying back and forth, and the congregation slowly turned around and gave me the eye, and as he was saying this, if any of you among, if there are any among you who want to be saved, please come forward at this time, which was the cue for the regulars to do this thing, you know. 
but I was the one who wanted to be saved, and they were really interested in my my behavior. And so I staggered and lurched, and they mentally were helping me along, I suppose. And it took me forever and a day to get down there, and they began to sing just as I am without one plea, and I, or it just nearly killed me in the tears. And I finally got to the altar, and the preacher put his hand out and put it on my head to pray for me, and I threw up all over it. <laughs> Now, in later years, I did many, 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 many bad things, especially driving a car. And the, but I never had anything, or I've never heard any story as disgraceful as mine that I threw up on the preacher uh, because I couldn't bear the, what I had done. And boy, did I get out of there and hitchhike back to that, uh, uh, you know, to get, to get on the main road to Los Angeles. And a truck came along and stopped, and uh, I got on the truck, and the truck driver felt sorry for me. Everybody seemed to feel sorry for me in those days. Poor little thing, poor little thing. And so I got on the truck, and he took me to my mother's door. He heard my sad story, and there was Mama taking care of Addie the best that she could. And that was just one little tale out of my youthful past. I, I, I was so young. And no and would vigorously deny it to everybody that, well, I didn't do anything. I was very defiant. Don't tell me what to do. And yet I'd go and suffer, 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 and do it again, do it again. And then when I would get in my car and lurch off down to the beaches someplace and get terribly drunk and terribly sick and hide my bottle in the sand, at a beach party where the others were behaving themselves and, and toasting weenies or something, uh, I would have my bottle down, packed down in the sand where I could haul it out and get drunk, and they'd wonder, well, where'd she get all that stuff anyway? They didn't have any to speak of. And, and I just misbehaved terribly. And so then I got in the car in, uh, in my wet bathing suit, and I started back towards Los Angeles. And the squad car beamed their lights at me. And I had been terribly sick all over my bathing suit on the front seat of the car. And I was just, make it home. Kill me. And the squad car stopped. And I looked so bad that instead of throwing me in jail like they do these days, they said, we're going to follow you, lady. Get going and drive slowly. And they followed me. And I began to straighten up a little bit and straighten up a little bit. And then they they got ahead of me and said, follow us. And they took me to my door because I'd given them my name and address. Now, they don't do that these days. They, they do not. You know that. <laughs> and so I must have been a pitiful sight. But they felt sorry for that poor little thing. And they shouldn't have because, on the other hand, if I was in a different mood and I was in a bar, I'd just, if I, if, Somebody said something I didn't like. I'd clobber them. I'd hit them. I'd get thrown out in 86. Don't come back here anymore. And there were a lot of bars I couldn't go in because I always started to fight and wind up out in the sidewalk just yelling and screaming and being crazy. One time, one time when I left the bar, 
I left before two o'clock, and I only lived two blocks from this car, uh, this this bar, and I was at the stage to where that I would I I could I I knew I'd make it home all right, but I would have to run a little bit and fall down, and I'd get up and I'd run a little bit and I'd fall down, and. I'd run a little bit and lay there a little while. I'd get up and I'd run, make a good little run of it, and then I would fall down. And I kept this up for two blocks. And when I got to our house where Addie was cozily sleeping with the housekeeper now to take care of her because I couldn't, uh, we just had had hired her, dear, dear Mrs. Stevens, who was with us then for quite a while. And... I would run and I would stumble and I would get up and I'd go and I got to our steps and as I went up the steps I looked back and my nylons were off and trailing down the steps and only my foot was in the heel of the nylon and I had been trailing those in back of me all the way from the bar and I didn't feel very happy about all that and <laughs> and, and yet I, I would pray and pray for help. Oh, God, please don't let me behave like this. What, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? I can't bear it. And so one day I got in my car very depressed, and I drove up over that ridge route and went to San Francisco and got there daylight and looked around and uh, barely daylight, and there wasn't even any place to get a drink, and I wondered why I am here. I don't know anyone. I want to go home. I turned around, and I got back on the ridge route, and uh, not very prosperous days then, and and the fellow who looked like he wasn't such a bad guy raised his hand for a ride, as they will do, and I pulled over because I could drive no longer. I was exhausted. I wanted to get home and see Addie. And so finally he uh, got in the car, and I said, can you drive? He said, yeah. And I said, I, I have to have some sleep, and uh, take me to Los Angeles. And he says, that's where I'm going. And so I got in the back seat and went to sleep. And uh, finally, somebody was shaking me. Lady, lady, wake up. We're in Los Angeles. Here we are at Sixth and Hill. I'm going to leave you here because I have to go down to Skid Row. That's where I belong. He says, you're here at Sixth and Hill. Can you, can you hear me? And I said, yeah. And so he left. And I looked to see where I was at Sixman Hill, and my eyes were blurred, and I read the sign there. It said, Sultan Turkish Bath. And I thought, I was pudgy in those days. Real, my face was very full. My arms were pretty big. My legs were big. My body was not that large, but I was out of proportion. And I thought, I'll take a Turkish bath like I used to when my brothers teased me, and I would take off five pounds real quick with a Turkish bath before I put it back on in a week. And I thought, that's the place where I used to take those baths. I'll go in there and sober up, and I'll go home, and I'll look good, and then I can tell them that uh, that I went up to San Jose to look at a prune ranch that was a good buy, and I was in the real estate business then. And that that's why I was out of town, and I can cook up the story, and the housekeeper will believe it, and, and I can get my foot in the door one more time, because Dick had said he wouldn't put up with it. And so I didn't want to go down there and think, think, think. I wanted to turn my head off. And I looked at them as a newsstand there, how handy. I wanted something to read after the Turkish bath, which takes quite a while. 
and I would stay there all night. And the next morning, I would put on my makeup, go home, and wouldn't have the shakes, and I'd be okay. And I wouldn't get in any worse trouble than I was in. So I thought I'd read, and I just grabbed the magazine. I had my turkey's bath, and then the terrible thoughts began to come back, and I was laying there in that cot in the little booth, and the light was shining down in my face. So I picked up the magazine just to read anything. And it was the Saturday Evening Post, and it was dated March 1st, 1941. And down at the bottom, in letters about an inch high, it said, Alcoholics Anonymous by Jack Alexander. March 1st issue, 1941. My God. And so I opened it, and with goose pimples coming out, because I had picked up a Time magazine with an article in it by Fulton Ausner two years before that, in 1939, when I was at my mother-in-law's home, a saintly lady, two years before I had picked it up in Liberty Magazine, now defunct, of course. But there was a short article in there that said, The Alcoholics and God. And I had read that, and he had written his first piece about Alcoholics Anonymous, and it was very short. And he simply said there was a small band of men who were meeting regularly and banding together who were alcoholics who did not want to drink. And so they met weekly and discussed their experiences, and they called themselves Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thought, I'll go back there. I'll find them. I will do that. And I couldn't wait to get out of it. I just couldn't wait. I looked at the pictures, you see, and I turned there was a full-page photo. And there were two men, and they were sitting by a bed. And I thought, oh, they're in a hospital. That man's awfully sick. He's probably as sick as I am. And there were these men there. And I thought, mentally, see, I didn't read the article, just looked at the pictures because I knew about AA having seen it in Liberty. And so I thought, they're, and he's awfully sick, and they're there in the AA hospital where they cure him. Just as real as if it would work, you know. And I turned the page, and then there was this guy in the ambulance at first. The first picture showed him in an ambulance, and... That was very interesting. I mentally thought it had a, a hospital on it, you know. That, they'd wheel him off to that. And then I turned the, uh, turned the page, and there they were talking to him in the bed there, and I thought, oh, that's where they cure him, you know. And I was going to... And then I turned to the end of the article to see where to find them. And I thought, I'll take the next plane back there. And so I got the box number. I don't know what it was then. But we'll say box 1345 or whatever. Grand Central Station, New York. And I wrote a letter to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I said, I'm a woman alcoholic, and I'm at the point of death from drinking, and I can do no better. And I have a lovely home and a good family, and I have a little girl, and I can't make it at all. I cannot make it at all. What can I do? 
I must enter your AA hospital and get cured. Please tell me where you are and I will be there as soon as possible. And I gave them my address and phone number and everything and I went on home and got my foot in the door one more time and I waited for an answer and it came right away. Airmail. And it was from Ruth Hawk. God bless her. She was Bill Wilson's secretary then, a little 25-year-old girl who worked for Bill, free, because he had no money. He, well, he gave her stock in Alcoholics Anonymous is what he did. <laughs> that's what they did. They laughed about it later, but uh, that's really what happened. And uh, so my, my answer came, and she said, uh, I'll never forget her handwriting. I'll never forget her signature, rather, Ruth Hawk. I can see it now. And the letter was not too long, but it simply said, Dear Sybil, we were glad to hear from you here at the New York office. And uh, you need not come back here to find Alcoholics Anonymous because in December 19, 1939, they started Alcoholics Anonymous in Los Angeles, your own hometown. And we, we will say this, there are very few of them. I started with two men and, uh, and one man actually finding another and then they joined together and but we understand now that they're meeting in the Elk Temple in Los Angeles and no longer meeting in homes in Pasadena. So I will give you the telephone number and address of the man who appears to be, uh, you know, leading the group or he has started the group or helped with it in some way because he's the only one we correspond with at this time. And so she gave me Frank Randall's address at 532 South Coronado and his phone number. And uh, so I uh, I went ahead and got drunk first. And because she had, unfortunately for me, had added a P.S. at the bottom of the letter, if you need help immediately, call Cliff Walker at Crestview one two three four five whatever it was Cliff Walker and the name uh, I I I will get tears if I even talk about him because he really saved my life I got drunk in this bar and I got thrown out and then I remembered AA and I got out the phone number of Cliff which was Crestview something or other then and called him up and his sleepy voice answered and I said. Send your AA ambulance and pick me up. I'm ready. <laughs> and he said, uh, we don't, that's not it. When we don't do that, uh, what kind of an outfit are you, uh, are you anyway? I uh, got drunk and, uh, well, you should have called me before you got drunk. I said, well, he said, we have a meeting downtown. I don't go because I'm a milkman and I'm ready to leave the house now and peddle some milk. You should have gone to the meeting at Friday night. 
the meeting that over for hours, why didn't you go? And I said, I did, but they threw me out. Oh, he said, that's impossible. That's impossible. They wouldn't have done that. They would have been so happy to have you. He said, you know, we've never had a woman alcoholic. We've never had a woman alcoholic. We understand that there is one in New York who is... Uh, <laughs> They don't know how it will work out with her, but her name is Marty Mann. And but we've never had a woman alcoholic. There's never been except that one back there that we don't know what her record is. So uh, actually, I couldn't do it anyway. But I'll give you Frank Randall's phone number. And I said, yeah, but they did throw me out. And he said, oh, there's been some mistake. They thought you were a wife. There was no Al-Anon. And any wife who came with her husband bought her knitting or something, I guess. And Frank would make this announcement. I'm jumping ahead to tell you what he would say. He'd say, this is the regular meeting. Alcoholics Anonymous in California were a bunch of ex-drunks who gathered together to obtain and maintain our sobriety on an all-time basis with no mental reservations whatsoever. And I would sit there shivering and shaking and say, what an order, I can't go through this. <laughs> Who could? I mean, all-time basis with no mental reservations whatsoever. But that's what happened. He said, go down there and tell him that I'm going to get in touch with him and tell him that there was an unfortunate mistake today, that we now have a woman alcoholic in on the West Coast as well as Marty Van on the East Coast. And so... The following Friday, I did go down, and I was really shaking and, and nervous. And I don't know why I had the nerve to do it after what I thought had happened to me, but he tried to, to make me uh, feel comfortable. And so when I went back, I had this red turban on and bloodshot eyes, and my face was uh, I just a mess. And the, if the dresses were long, then I wore them short. If they were short, I wore them long. I was always uh, behind and everything. And so I sat there just palpitating and, and uh, scared witless. And, but I think was, oh, he was so eloquent. He was talking about Alcoholics Anonymous and his story about getting drunk in Phoenix, Arizona and everything. And then when it came to this point about, and now then before we get into the talking to you alcoholics so that you can talk, we were going to ask the women leave the room. He said, except if there are any here who will call themselves alcoholics, those women may remain, and he looked right at me. So I, I grinned and I folded my arms, and I stayed, and 
the wives got up and left, and they had their own special type of little Al-Anon meeting out there, I guess. And uh, I stayed, and so I remained, and from that day to this. And as I say, it's been glorious, it's been wonderful, and then I've had my share of problems and illnesses in the family, and all of those things that happened to everybody all over the world, whether they ever had a drink or not. Um, it, it seems to me that one of the greatest experiences that I can remember ever having, and I should talk a little bit about it, is that let me get a bearing on the clock here so that I won't be charged with talking too long. Um, I was the executive secretary of the central office in Los Angeles for 12 years. And I want to tell you that um, I, I finally got in the park but four blocks away from the office. And uh, I always loved animals, so I had a little dog, a little fox terrier, Tippy, and I would walk him in the mornings before I went down to uh, the office. And I, I got an apartment a block away from 1805 Wilshire Boulevard, where the central office was, and I would walk into a park, which was about four blocks away from the central office, every morning. And so one morning, I, I took him down, and I was walking around, and there was a tree in the center of the park, and under it was a man with a newspaper, he was sitting down with his feet out. And as the dog and I were walking past him, he would move the newspaper so that we couldn't see him. That was his little home there under the tree, and he just made himself invisible to the lady that walked the dog every morning. And I never got to see what his face looked like. And then one time, when I walked the dog at night through the park, and it was safe in those days, he, uh, he, he was lying down with the newspaper over his face. And I watched his deterioration. And I felt ashamed, and I thought, here you become a professional AA, answering the telephones at the central office and sending other people out to work with the alcoholics, and yet you, you've been watching this man now for a week, and here he is on the ground. And I took the dog home and then walked back and, and, and looked under the tree that the, the, it must have been a willow tree of some kind. It came down almost to the ground all the way around. And, and I looked under there and he was stretched out straight and not moving. And I thought, oh, I've waited too long. He's dead. I've waited too long. And so I bent over him and I hollered, Mister? No answer. Mr. No answer. 
and I never could get a, a lousy. And I thought, I waited, oh, I'm a rotten person. So I went to the corner liquor store, and I got a scrap of paper and asked him for a pencil and uh, a pen or something, that I, or anything, a scotch tape. And I wrote a little note, and I said, I'll be back at 6 a.m. in the morning to see you. Stay where you are at all costs. <laughs> and I somehow pinned it to his uh, shirt and went on home. And so the next morning, I left the dog at home, and I went back to see the man, and I tiptoed under the tree, and he was propped up under it, and he said, Oh, lady, I woke up, and when I came home last night, I found your little note, and uh, was laying on the ground. I guess you thought you had put it on my body, but it was, I thought, was a note of some kind, but uh, my glasses, I usually hang them up on the tree at night when I come home, I've been staying here a long time, but they're not there now, so I, know I couldn't read it. So I took it to the liquor store, and the man said, you get back under that tree, and you stay there until that lady comes back. <laughs> so he says, now you got me, lady. What are you going to do with me? <laughs> And I said, you'll see. So I put him in the car, and I took him down to the 12-step house, and uh, I told them to look after him, and, uh, which they did. And uh, so pretty soon, one morning, he comes into the uh, central office where I'm working. It wasn't long after that either, and he looked. I didn't recognize the man. They'd given him clothes. And he said, little lady, he said, you know, I'm kind of deaf, and that's why I couldn't hear you very well that night when you tried to talk to me under the tree. And he says, I'm awful hard of hearing. And he said, one of the members down there at the 12 step house, his wife had died, and he gave me a hearing aid. I'm here now. I can hear you if you want to talk to me. And he said, you know, they made me cook down there at that 12 step house. And I was, uh, that was my, my profession. I was a cook before my drinking got so bad. So he said, I don't plan on drinking anymore, and I go to the meetings around the area here, and especially at the 12-step house, so I, I don't intend to drink. And he said, I want to give you a buck for you to put in the kitty here for somebody like me that might come along and, and need help as bad as I did that night. 
Attention, I'll come back and see you pretty often. It's only about four or five blocks from here, which he did. And he never had another drink. He looked sharp in a fifty-dollar uh, suit. Uh, long after that, I I kept track of him forever in a day, and it it made me feel good to see uh, what would be considered a helpless, hopeless person in every aspect turn out just to be a solid citizen. And then one time I was sitting there at the central office answering the phone. And the girl's voice said, uh, can you help me? And I said, that's what we're here for. And she began to cry. And she said, I don't know what to do. I'm sitting down here in this general hotel room and there's about 11 winos lined up against the wall asleep and their drugs are all over the floor. And I'm so hungover and sick and I just don't know what to do. And I, I said, well, we can't help 11 winos pass out down on Skid Row. She said, well, I know that, but what about me? What about me? Can you help me? And I said, well, of course, that's a different story, but I won't send a woman down there alone. I said, will you not drink until I can get someone down there? It might be several hours, I'll do the best, I'll get on the phones right away, which I did, and I got Bill Wells and his wife, who were both AA members, and they went down there on schedule and found the exact situation the way it was, and I called up Dee at the friendly house and told her that this gal begged for help, that she was a helpless skid girl wino, and would she take her in? And he said, send her over to me, baby, send her over to me. And then I called Happy Austin, who was a go-getter, and I said, can you round up some clothes for a gal who wants to get sober and then not much. She doesn't want to drink. Happy said, you can count on me. And it just turned out fine. Well, the thing was that her husband and son and this woman had all got separated because of her boozing. And her husband had been an upstanding citizen. And her son was in a home somewhere out in El Monte, and she didn't know how to find him. And anyway, we investigated around and, and found out where the husband, the ex-husband was. And so this girl developed pneumonia, and it was Christmas time. 
and she developed some kind of pneumonia that got scared and she died. And it was my job then to notify the son and the husband and they came but they didn't know the son was never told that his mother was in that shape. It was just that she lived there with those beautiful women at Friendly House and had been doing fine when she caught pneumonia. And he never knew, he was just a fine looking boy about 15. And so Happy Austin called every woman alcoholic she could lay hands on to be there to make a funeral out of it. And when we got out there, I want to tell you, there was a crowd of people, men and women, standing around there making out that they were friends of this woman who died so suddenly. And that made you feel good when you saw that boy later on and he grew up. He never knew that his mother had this terrible problem and it didn't, it didn't hurt him not to know at that particular time. If he was told later when he was a man, why well, I'm sure he took it very well indeed. But this alcoholism thing is such a killer. And it is so uh, hard to tag, and there's not not too many people who really understand what it's all about. Our neighbors down the street certainly don't. Maybe they think they do now because they've been enlightened and they've read a lot. But they never know until they, they themselves, if they're alcoholic and, and want help and need help, and when they recognize that and come here and find the welcome that this man of 25 days will find that he has, what a, a wonderful big family it is. It's just like one big family. I'm not afraid of you anymore. I don't feel like I don't belong. I feel like I'm at home. Uh, I would be at home anywhere, in any land. Whether they could speak English or not, it wouldn't make any difference. Uh, Honest goodness, Bob went up to a Inuvik in Northwest Territories to talk um, a few years back because they had nothing up there but, but igloos. And uh, they, they said uh, when they phoned him and told him to come, they said, you being, you being civil, and we'll make the necklace sleep in the igloo. And he said, no, ma'am, I'm afraid that'd be a little too cold for my wife. 
that I can come up there, which he did. And they rounded up a few Canadians and they had a, had a little, uh, meeting up there for them. And the reason for that was that Sam had started it and he was blind and he had been, uh, keeping in touch with the New York office. And Sam couldn't see at all, but he believed in AA and he got sober and is sober to this day. And I was up in Canada last year and Sam's wife came to greet me and Sam was blind and had the flu and was not well and couldn't come but he's been sober all these years to imagine those sober Eskimos up there. There's just no limit to where this program goes and how it gets people well if they want to get well. I have more faith in Alcoholics Anonymous than I can begin to tell you. There are so many wonderful things that have happened. And then I found that life can get rough um, and that you don't have to drink. Uh, I had another bad experience where that I came home from the hole in the ground, which was the, uh, the group that my brother Tech started. He came in Alcoholics Anonymous shortly after I did, and instead of going down and listening to the speakers of another group, he said, Why, the drunk thought I have a chance to talk. I'm going to start a participation meeting. And here I am going downtown, you know, and I'm in charge of all the women that got sober. They're my babies. And Texas is starting this group out there in Huntington Park and the powers that be downtown are saying, what's your brother up to? And I'll say, well, he's studying a group out here in Huntington Park. Well, he can't do that. Well, he has. Well, he can't do that. We've incorporated alcoholics around us in California. That means nobody can start a group unless they have our permission. And so Tex went down there and and uh, they, they bawled him out and they said, We don't want you here, sir. You came down here a few times and called on how to do it, and now you've started to rival group out there, out there in Huntington Park. And he said, It's not a rival group. He said, it's just we got so tired of driving so far from Long Beach, clear on down, 
to the Friday night meeting, we just thought we'd start one halfway, and then on Wednesday night, we meet at Curly O'Neill's house down in Long Beach, and that gives us one on Wednesday, one on Monday, and one on Friday, see? And they said, no, we don't, see? Now, our attorney, our attorney has incorporated Alcoholics Anonymous of California, and if you don't call that group up, we'll sue you, we'll run you out of town, because you are hurting this group, and, and, and it will cause all kinds of problems. And so we have incorporated alcoholics anonymous worldwide. Nobody started to let, you know, the New York office and, and we give them the okay. And take that down and laugh and he said, you have tried to incorporate alcoholics Anonymous. I don't care if the member says it's an attorney has incorporated it here in California. You can't do that. You might as well try to incorporate a sunset. I'll let you eight to five that within a year or two we'll have groups around here and here and here and San Bernardino and, and Chino and Oxnard and everywhere else. I'll guarantee you that this thing is going to go like wildfire and that no little peanut group of a mother group like you who refuses to let them stand can stop. It's gonna go. Well, it, it, he was right. We are born and we're going faster all the time. And we're getting younger and prettier and more handsome and, and they gain the knowledge faster and faster because there's more books. Thank you. 
Adopt Bob Anatim. He came out with Bill in the fifties, just the one time. And I got to shake his hand, and he was a very quiet man. Bill talked an hour at the Shrine Auditorium. And every day in California was there. And shortly I said, I'm not sober too long. And then Dr. Bob got up to talk and he talked 20 minutes. And in 20 minutes, he said a lot. Oh, 
Oh, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah.